0: Oh, there we go. Brilliant. A uh, couple, couple word bits. First of all, oh, uh, it's uh, Helen? Carolyn. I, I always think newcomers' name. Carolyn and Connie, you guys need to meet each other. You've just both moved here from the Akron, North Canton area. So I just think it's crazy that one week we've got two people relocating. So, And for some reason, I introduced Connie as Helen last week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, John, and I just don't know why. Maybe Helen is stuck in my head. I keep introducing people as Helen. So, if your name is Helen and I haven't met you yet, maybe I'm supposed to. So I'll take that. Uh, secondly, I want to say uh, Daniel was mentioning uh, growing up in the church. I actually, um, you know, I, I every about eight to ten years have a crisis of faith. It's kind of deal. And my first real major crisis of faith, or what I would call kind of my spiritual puberty. It, which was kind of like, you know, if God, you know, all these things I've learned, all these arguments for why would I believe this true, uh, all this, you know, I binged the Bible through a few times, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, when on one day, one day what happened to me was I found out that uh, I got, felt a kind of sense of betrayal by a couple of my best friends, um, Found out my girlfriend was cheating on me, my first love. And uh, first person said yes on a second date. <laughs> you know, Which didn't happen too much until Adrian. Uh, and then thirdly, I found out my mom had cancer. And her and my dad were going off to Boston to get treatments over our Christmas break. And this was right before Christmas break and high school started. So those three things kind of happened together. And I had been in this kind of youth group that where it was if you... Don't do all the bad things. Don't do, don't do, don't, don't. In fact, the youth group I would be as don't. You know, if you want to be evidence that God is real, here's all the things you don't do. It was as much focused on here's the things you do do. And in fact, around this time, uh, we had a ministry where we would go to AIDS hospice houses and clean. We would, we would clean uh, because at that point, uh, just the way our culture was in the 80s is people... People were worried you could get AIDS by rubbing shoulders with someone of this, and people were so hated and mistreated. So these houses actually had secret locations uh, around Columbus, and we were cleaning that. And we had the church shut down our ministry I was in and say that, you know, whatever. And it's like, okay, I, I may be in this little paradigm of, like, legalism and culture warrior and stuff, but I did read Matthew. This doesn't wash. So around that time, I just... Uh, someone invited me to go to this church that met at Westerville North's auditorium, and I went to a pretty high, pro- for that time, production value church, and went to this church that just seemed kind of chaotic and everything, and that was uh, the church uh, uh, Daniel's uh, father planted. He was a youth pastor at Central College and then uh, did this, and actually ended up dating a girl that babysat Daniel's siblings. But I was there be- it, from then till I went to college, And it just became a safe place for me where, uh, you know, uh, Jeff, uh, Daniel's dad, wasn't someone that tried to argue into why you can't have questions or argue you. He wasn't defensive of people's deconstruction process, as it were. He was inviting of it. And it it was just such a blessing to uh, then eventually be able to officiate uh, his child's uh, wedding And, you know, sequin And be a part of their life And be learning And just to um, experience how that anointing Of grace, freedom, compassion And just non-anxious presence That you carry on in your own way So that was was finding that And so there are a lot of elements Of our church community That came out of my experience At Westville North Auditorium When your uh, dad first planted So... And uh, I know it wasn't all roses, by the way, I, I, I can relate, but uh, just wanted to say that. Well, um, this week we we're going to have Cody Miller speak, but we're actually going to postpone that because I know we had these announcements and everything, and I wanted to give his presentation more time to breathe. Cody Miller, if you Google Cody Miller art, one of my favorite artists, uh, Katie put together getting his artwork printed on all these uh, uh, paintings around here. Not the only artist, we've got John McCollum and other people represented here and hopefully a lot more in the future, but that's Cody's art and he's a dear friend of our little congregation, so uh, he will be rescheduled. But I wanted to kind of zone in on a point that I didn't really get to zone in on last week. We've been talking about the treasure in the field, which out of all the parables of Jesus, it's the one, it's the, one of the first teachings in Matthew that I couldn't get out of my head part of it is i went to this beautiful little church and this pastor who was just such a person deep integrity but he would preach verse by verse and he got stuck on this verse like a skipping record so every week and it captivated my imagination and my imagination generally runs wild in church anyway and i would if i got bored i would just go reading through the bible trying to find weird things like i wonder what's on the 666th page of scripture Is that the devil's passage? No, You know, weird things like that. But but he captivated me when he talked about the treasure in the field and the thing that's worth everything. And I've always told you I've been captivated by treasure hunting, antiques roadshow. I'm the guy that memorized the comic book price guide 1981 so I could go to thrift stores and flea markets and find out the treasures for a quarter, which eventually retired my consumer debt that Adrian and I had run up on credit cards through eBay. So it paid off. But the whole idea of the treasure in the field, that you find this thing that... It's like, oh my gosh, this is worth everything. And I coupled that with the fact that I'm an obsessive compulsive person, actually at one point uh, diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. I didn't believe it at first because I said, well, I'm not super hygienic. And I hear OCD people wash their hands all the time. And I said, I, I, I struggle with that. I mean, Adrian's always like, go back to the bathroom, wash your hands. I'm sorry, true confession. But he says, no, those cycling negative thoughts and worries and fears always are grinding in the back of your head that you can't stop, no matter how much prayer. Those might be a little bit OCD as well. So I found out I was down with OCD. But um, I've been playing with this idea of this obsession, what is good obsession or what is good passion. And uh, around this time, actually the time I was uh, attending... uh, Uh, your father's uh, church, I found this book by a man named John White uh, called Magnificent Obsession. It was a remix of an older book he had written. And he was very transparent about that. Some people just publish the same book over and over and don't tell you that it's the same book over and over to keep selling it. Like I think Hal Wednesdays had like 40 books about when the rapture is going to happen. He just reskins it and gave another conspiracy theory and there you go. But in this fact he changed his paradigm of thinking. The book used to be called The Cost of Commitment the cost of commitment, and really kind of follow it. It was kind of like a simplified version of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. And he rewrote it, calling it Magnificent Obsession. And he'd written this out of, out of uh, transitioning, out of a point of leadership into the semi-retirement, and when he discovered his, the next thing God had for him, he wrote this. And he went through a time of kind of desolation, and then, as he was reading uh, the passage about the pearl of great price, he says, You know, my whole life I focused on the cost of commitment. But really, it's a magnificent obsession. It's a magnificent obsession. He found out really, it's not this don't, don't, don't. It's the look what God has for you. Um, what you don't see in this passage, very short, like three story, two or three stories in one little bit here. What you don't see is the person lamenting the fact he had to sell everything. Or the person says, yeah, it's going to be a bummer, man. For this treasure, you're going to have to get rid of everything. You don't see any element of that. You see you have this, this joy outpouring, like, look at what I've found. Yet a lot of times when we talk about following God, we do talk about unless a seed falls on the ground and it dies, but we forget that that seed becomes a plant. That seed is the components of what becomes a plant. It isn't the seed dies in a fire the seed becomes something bigger. And when we talk about the cost of commitment, we're talking about an obsession with metamorphosis, an obsession of the good things God can grow in us and the good things God can change. It's not a question like, you know, uh, a lot of my uh, Buddhist brothers and sisters really talk about desire, and there's different takes on this within that tradition, but desire being the root of all suffering. And uh, whereas the Christian story is, you know, a lack of good desire is the root of all suffering. And instead of, crowd, instead of just don't desire bad things, the idea is a good desire, like the parable of the mustard seed, will grow into a tree where all the birds of the field are welcomed to nest in its branches. Uh, the good desire, it's about crowding out the funkiness with the goodness of Jesus, crowding out. And what are we willing to move so we can receive this delivery that God has? Um, the passage, Matthew 13, 44-46, uh, Lord bless the reading of your word, says this. It said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that someone discovered hidden in the field. In his excitement, he hid it again, sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Uh, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. And so I was thinking about this term of what is the antidote for an obsessive compulsive disorder because I found that some of these ways that I'm wired, these quirky ways, God can reappropriate for his kingdom. You know, it's like, okay, uh, I need an obsessive compelling reorder to fill the space of uh, an obsessive-compulsive disorder. And by the way, yes, I got therapy and medication too. All right, I'm not saying, like, if you're having stuff, a little, by the way, sidebar about getting help. All right, sidebar about that element, is in in Western culture here, where we have all these passions aimed at the very harmful things, you know, power, prestige, wealth, Where our passions are corrupted, in this culture, we happen to live in the most privileged society in the history of humankind. To the point of where the poorest of the poor can go to a soup kitchen or a food pantry and at least find some food. Where there's poverty all around the world where people don't find that food. What I'm saying is even to be poor means to have somewhat have access to food resources. So we live in the most privileged, secure time of humankind at the same time we also live under more fear than ever before it's this weird uh, paradox and, but what I would say is being in the western culture whereas for instance uh, in our churches along the Amazon we don't have like horrible symptoms of autistic spectrum disorder because life isn't very overwhelming in an agrarian community where everyone goes to bed at the same time wakes up at the same time and can't acquire too much and doesn't have, uh, don't have smartphones. I mean, it, there's not certain things that seem epidemic in our culture don't exist in more simple cultures. So I would say that, but we also have access to resource like never before. So I think probably everyone in our culture in our time, which I can speak of, probably struggles with a level of mental illness due to the societal toxicity we live in. But we also live in a time where people where I think everyone, to some degree or another... So if I confess, like, you know, I suffer from uh, chronic depression and mental illness, just so you know, I don't think I'm being super transparent. I think you all have issues. <laughs> and if you don't, it just means that um, we have a different belief about where you're at. <laughs> I, 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 so, so I think in our culture and our time, like the necessity of restricting your life to make room to receive help Help from therapy Help from authentically being In community with other people That believe in healing and will pray for you uh, uh, Making space in your life For God to inhabit And what we do To make space in our life Is we Declutter And this, compared to this Treasure, and compared to this pearl Everything else is cluttered and when you move the clutter out, you make space for the Lord to inhabit. And by the way, we, it, that's, not turn, that's not like if I do this, this, and this, God's going to be happy with me. There, it's not a quid pro quo at all. It's all like if you want to have someone over for dinner, you probably need to put a leaf in the table, cook some more food, and put another seat at the table. When we declutter, when we, when we take our false treasures and exchange them for the real treasure, it's a matter of making room. God coming over to have breakfast with you is just grace. It is all grace. This whole like obsessive, like this idea of looking at faith, instead of this epic story looking at it as an algebraic equation, we think, well, that means we're doing something, so it's not grace. I said, no, dude, if you approach a marriage like that, you're screwed. <laughs> you know, it's like if I if everything's transactional in a marriage, you're gonna have a bad marriage. But if you're both if you're in a marriage where you're both constantly making space for the other, you'll have a brilliant marriage. So it's not this quid pro quo. It's making room, making space. So I cannot separate this passage about treasure without the idea of making space. And the thing is, wealth, in our culture, uh, we have many kinds of wealth. Many cultures do not have this uh, two-word thing that we talk about. Spare time. Do you know spare time doesn't exist everywhere in the world? I mean, people like work and then they eat and sleep. And this idea of like all this disposable time in, in subsistence cultures doesn't really exist. Now, we have time of rest, obviously. But this idea of like you need to spend that time resting. You need to spend that time you've been farming all day, connecting with your family. That's not spare time. That's making space. And, but in our culture, we have spare time. We get more clutter that can come in that keeps us from the treasured life. And uh, I wanted to just talk a little bit about kind of some of the things I had to give up because I think this might uh, fall in with you guys. Uh, when I... Uh, I would say my, a second major crisis of faith I had... You know, occurred about maybe, uh, let's see, 1989, about six years uh, after my first crisis of faith, and that was shortly after my mom died, eventually died of cancer, and I had just kind of trying to launch into adulthood, struggling in that, graduated college, and all these kind of ideas of what happens after that. It was a typical Gen X letdown. If you know much about Generation X, have you ever watched the... All the the movies that surrounded that uh, This is the older folks right now, Gen X But it's just that disappointment Of getting to the top of this accomplishment Now, what now? And I was also just really cynical And negative about the church Um, I actually made a commitment uh, That I uh, uh, would never go to a church again Unless it was a church Where the things I'm passionate about Wouldn't be out it wouldn't be outlawed or stuff, unless it's like a church that does what Jesus did, like Sermon on the Mount stuff. And I didn't think it existed, really, to be honest. I was pretty myopic in my experience. Um, And uh, someone invited me to the vineyard, and the first thing I saw was some apparently homeless people worshiping with some well-dressed people, and some with a skateboard uh, stowed under the seat and stuff. I said, oh, this kind of seems like it might. And then they had an announcement for volunteers for... uh, Project Compassion, which was serving HIV-positive folks. I'm like, wow, that was just a bomb right there. But I had formed my brain in fear and cynicism over the years. Part of it is uh, when I I never really landed consistently in a church in my college days. I was part of a lot of ministry, but I wasn't part of a local church community. I wasn't rooted in the church, and uh, so, I would fill myself with all these ideas and just, instead of being a participant, I became a a church reviewer. I'd visit churches and, you know, hold up the figure skating numbers of how well it was and go back and then continue to get cynical and stuff. I wasn't actually a part of uh, a building process and everything. And I eventually, when I got back in the vineyard, it became a long and arduous healing process. And I was actually just chatting on Facebook today with a person who was a huge... Uh, catalyst in my new life That was Mark Tyndall, And I was uh, I was 4th of July And we uh, I lived at 180 West North Broadway On the corner of Milton And things so when everyone would walk through there To go to the fireworks and I did the same way Let's hand everyone um, some high fructose Corn syrup and carbonated water and I probably gave a bunch of people diabetes. I don't know. But uh, handing out pop, just invite people to church or whatever. But I remember just sitting there and just grousing. And Mark, Mark skipped the fireworks and he hung out with and he goes, Jeff, he says, you know, y- your cynicism is really just fear. Your cynicism is fear. Your uh, judge first, ask questions later, that's self-protection because you've been hurt. And I I know some of your story, don't know all your story, but what would it be like to let that go? What would it be like to identify that and let that go? And because there's so much joy waiting for you. And I was a pretty, you know, I'll tell you what, if I didn't begin formation process then, Adrian wouldn't give me a second glance. Because I was a real downer at that point. And it, what began to be kindled in me, is I, and this was a year's process with various paradigm shifts, was learning to see the brokenness of groups of people coming together trying to follow Jesus and see the beauty of Jesus amidst this, you know, maybe blurry painting. You know, see the beauty of Jesus. And I started dealing with the idea of forgiving people that hurt me and letting go. And, you know, eventually, evolved, get, years later getting a spiritual director, it involved me being consistent in a church for a long time till I learned to trust again. It learned, uh, it learned from me experiencing betrayal at various times in my life and learning, you know what? There's, there's story beyond betrayal. And then being able to see the story behind other people's betrayal. Seeing stories continue after divorce. Stories continue you know, after the death of a loved one. Stories Continuing after financial desolation. I I started being part of community. I got to see the story continues There's more to be had Mm -hmm. and uh, What I had to do for me was lay down self-protection and Realize that it the cynicism Was really the fruit of something deeper and that's self-protection and self-protection, when you make vows, like, I'm never going to let someone do that again. I'm, I, generally, here's a way to find out a vow. A vow is when you have, I'm never going to preface something. I'm never going to let. And uh, not always, but 90% of I'm never going to are probably vows. Vow is a pagan prayer to self. I was saying, because if you exegete that statement Or you do an amplified version is I, with all the power that resides in me Are going to guarantee that I'm not going to suffer In this or that way And really you're just kind of saying a prayer to yourself Versus, God You know know where I'm vulnerable You know where I hurt Please be my healer Be my strength, be my shield You know uh, Help me not to be tempted By the bad things that happen But actually lead me into your kingdom Lead me into your kingdom. And uh, what I found at every point of big turning point in my life is for me realizing where self-protection has been keeping me from the fullness of Jesus. Not only receiving from Jesus, but it blocks you up. Because it's hard to be Jesus to people that... uh, It's hard to be Jesus to people when, at the core, you fear people. It's hard to be Jesus to people when, the core, you fear them. And I mean any people. Any people. Like, the one thing I love about uh, Jesus and disciples is they demonstrated, you know, they obviously didn't fear the powerless, but they didn't fear the powerful either. They obviously didn't fear the powerless, but they didn't fear the the powerful either. They spoke truth. And uh, that's the opposite of status-seeking, but it's also the opposite of self-protection. You know, I would say almost everything we pursue that takes us away from Jesus is an effort to protect ourselves from pain. You know, the pursuit of wealth is wealth brings safety. So, let me ask do you see a level of fearlessness enjoy levity in the wealthiest people in the world? I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I see a lot of grumpy people that ha- are in the 1%. We see them in the news. Apparently, that didn't work for the soul-thrivation. It didn't work. So maybe, we, But uh, there's a lot of people who self-protect through trying to be the smartest person in the room, through knowledge. Has anyone ever met a miserable academic at OSU? <laughs> anyone? Has anyone ever been a miserable academic? No, you are one of the most joyful academics. But uh, it's weird. I know people who are the most highly regarded, and I listen to their lectures on YouTube or TED Talks, I'm saying, but there's still a sense of joylessness. Not because uh, uh, wealth cannot be used helpfully. Not because uh, academic accomplishments aren't awesome. But because if it's a method of protecting yourself, you need to declutter to make room for the treasure of God's healing. But there's a humiliation in treasure seeking. There's humiliation in treasure seeking, selling everything you got, you know. This uh, Pearl Merchant, I don't know if he had an estate sale or what he did, a tag sale to get rid of everything as quick as possible. The process of surrender often is it exposes you. What if the person who had the treasure in the field sold every hit it, sold everything he had, but then Went to buy it and the treasure was gone What if the pearl merchant Didn't get back in time You know there is an inherent Risk that we're going to feel but, but the kingdom is The guaranteed treasure The kingdom, the reign And the rule of Jesus And I've had to And Adrian and I have I would say 10 years into playing of the church You know stress, uh, and stuff from our first formation. Can I say what the first formation is? When your kids, your clay, and your circumstances shape you. When your kids, your clay, and your circumstances shape you. And Generally, the most shapeful people are a mother and father, or the absence of a mother and father is shaping too. Or how they are present, either helpfully or unhelpfully. And I've shared with you some real positive things that shape me, like mom... Always telling me, you know, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks, It only matters what Jesus thinks. And I, I can't imagine how I mean I still worry about what people think, but if I didn't hear that every day, how much worse it would be. But our first formation, when we de- we call in the vineyard, we call it formational healing, is when we see one of the most fertile places for God to begin change that affects us now, is dealing with our past. Dealing with our past. And that is not a solo pursuit. You know, there's a reason why self-help books are the biggest section of half price books. Because they, no matter how good they are, self-help doesn't work. But there's something about a community. There's something about a community. And my my first uh, experience is that, you know, I have a, a couple guys I get together, try to get together every week. And through our text thread and stuff is where I get the insight into what, God might be forming in me, because they kind of lay out all the, the brokenness, and that's why, that's why there, there's help in 12-step programs, that's why there's help in home groups, that's why there's help in certain kinds of group therapy, uh, but 10 years in our marriage, Adrian and I were really feeling the burn of the bad parts of our first formation. And it was then uh, through uh, our friend, friend Sheila praying with us, and also through... Uh, uh, one of my uh, mentors Giving me this book Generation to generation Which it wasn't even a Christian book But it just dealt with All what and Actually uh, dealt with a lot of what Scripture says about first formation And then I started realizing, realize Oh my gosh There's all this area Of what we can even call Early childhood trauma That God wants to address So I'm not afraid and self-protective Like I am now There's all this area There's all this defensiveness That shows up in my marriage or in, in me, or in Adrian, this defensiveness because we were afraid. Because we didn't have certain core me- needs or longings met. Or pain. And what I found out is none of this could I processed on my own. I had to talk about these formational issues. And uh, that was what I thought is all my insight and all my self-protective secrets... Or what I, secrets, not money or anything like, and this, most of us know money won't keep us safe because the richest people feel scared. Most people have some inkling of knowledge of that. But mo- most people believe self-protection can keep you safe. And the one guarantee is it won't. Self-protection can end a marriage, can end a friendship. Self-protection can, can circumvent opportunities in your life. You know, whether it's manifest in cyn- cynicism or paranoia. You know, uh, paranoia, in paranoia, sometimes you can be a paranoid person and have threats mounted against you You can be a paranoid person and not have threats mounted against you But the idea is the kingdom of God is anti-paranoia, whether justified or not I love it in the prophet Isaiah, he says, don't call conspiracy what all these people call conspiracies Are there conspiracies out there? Yes, it's called corporate lobbying, or whatever Are there conspiracies out there? But don't, don't even worry about naming things conspiracies because we're a part of a good conspiracy. That's the kingdom. It's a little mustard seed, that, the hidden kingdom that sneaks in and makes a place for all the little birdies. We are part of the mustard seed conspiracy. That's, and I found a paranoia of like worrying like someone's going to get me so I better protect myself first. Stop me from being authentic, dealing with my early childhood stuff, It would have ended up in the dissolution of my marriage and every good thing that's ever happened to me. You know, uh, fear is contagious. It's like I'm so glad I was able to process these fears with my kids when they were short and little. You know, the point where now they're probably one of the most uh, uh, consistent truth-tellers in my life if I'm living out of fear and self-protection. You know, my kids call it out, and they don't generally sugarcoat it. And uh, I'm glad that they got to at least see this process so they're doing better. They're in a better place than I am. But paranoia is generally this. Paranoia is the inability to imagine that someone might be in a healthier place than you are. That's one element of paranoia. The inability to imagine that someone else has something to offer you and bring health to you. You know, and the thing is, every one of you have something to give someone else here. And every one of you have something to be afraid about, to be afraid of. Every one of you have some fearsome aspect of who you are that can come out on a bad day. But every one of you also has a bit of the treasure. And we miss out, without being authentically vulnerable with one another, we miss out on that treasure that that each of us has a little piece of. And by the way, you will get hurt. You will get betrayed. Your, 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 your paranoia sometimes would be right. And that's why it's great to know a healer. You know, no one buys a car thinking it's never going to need new tires or oil change. Right? You, is, if you waited to buy a car that never needed oil change or if this electric car ever needed tires, you would never get a car. But you get a car and you perform routine maintenance on that car so you can go places. Routine maintenance enables you to go places. Our routine maintenance is the bread and the cup that we're going to celebrate. Because in the Eucharist, we're going to celebrate today, the bread and the cup is where we align ourselves for the Savior who was vulnerable to the worst that humankind had to offer, who suffered, was crucified, and died. Who didn't try to have a culture warfare against those they were opposed to, but rather said, into your hands I commend my spirit. Our model, and then resurrection. Our model is vulnerability and resurrection when the hits come. The resurrection life. Um, I want to invite um, uh, Thomas McGraw up. Thomas is going to be doing Eucharist today. Um, I've done a version of a liturgy he wrote a couple times. I love it. Um, I want to say a couple words before we do this is uh, we do communion every week to physically, spiritually, mystically, and practically and digestively align ourselves with the kingdom of God. And If you ask me to write a big theological paper on any of those forget it. I I can participate but just like I have a hard time defining the dynamics of my marriage I have a hard time defining uh, the Eucharist, right? You feel me? But when we do this, uh, when you come up for the cup, we're going to sing in our seats, but when you come up for the cup, we haven't figured this out yet, right? (laughs) We're trying to figure this out. Is how do we incorporate praying for one another in our liturgy better? Because a lot of times what happens when we run out of time, our praying for each other, which is like, along with the Eucharist, is like the apex of our worship together, doesn't happen. And here's the great thing about praying for Everyone. Is everyone who's praying realizes, despite everything, I have something to give. And everyone who's getting prayed for, uh, despite everything, I have something I can receive from another human being and from Jesus. There is this dynamic of vulnerability, both to pray for and be prayed for. There's a vulnerability, and all, all healing begins with vulnerability. So I want to ask uh, those uh, our prayer team to make it up before Eucharist uh, before we celebrate communion I want to bring communion to you while people are coming up, we've got three stations So we'll just go to two So if you can get there in advance And um, while you're coming up for communion Just uh, If anyone has any uh, A specific, like maybe thinks they have A prophetic word or a prophetic prayer point You know, just uh, run it by me and, and share it Or if I have anything to share And that might specifically orient you Towards something uh, to receive prayer But the hardest thing about receiving prayer Is getting out of your seat And boy have we made it easy for you. you Get out of your seat to do communion You've got your 90% there A lot of you are in a scary trans- time of transition right now uh, Bring Jesus into your fears Bless you
1: So as we turn to Eucharist To the Lord's Supper We do share in this meal Every week Participating in the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. So I invite you, imaginatively place yourself there at that table. See the group of people here in this room that God is forming together, and all of the people in the church across time and throughout the world that Jesus is gathering. We're here at this table because Jesus extends to us an invitation, strangers and friends, believers and doubters the certain and the curious it's always a mixed company that jesus gathers and invites to his table wherein bread and cup we who are different are united together as one body come not because you understand but because you are understood come not because of how you feel but because god has food for you and come not because you feel deserving but because Jesus invites you and welcomes you just as you are. So scripture invites us to examine ourselves before coming to the table. And as we... Does the worship team need to come up, Jeff? Yeah, yeah the worship team should come up because we're going to sing the confession song together. But as we even prepare to confess, hear these words of grace from scripture, that if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let us sing the confession song together. And so the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You do proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. So now let us pray. Lord, send now your spirit among us. Come with your presence in this bread and in this cup, that as we come forward and give you our lives, let us taste and see your goodness, be united in your love, and become one body, your hands and feet in the world. Amen. And so I invite you to come forward and share together. Here at CV, we have an open table. So we enjoy by dipping the piece of bread into the juice. And so please, come and eat.